Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we will be talking about a diamond. Fancy jewelry. So the famed Koh-i-Noor diamond is said to bring trouble to any man who possesses it. But uh, women and gods are very conveniently exempt from very that. Very conveniently. So this diamond has the longest history of any extant stone. And even if you don't believe in curses... It has definitely caused its fair share of trouble, maybe because in its heyday, before it was cut down a whole bunch, it was 191 carats. It's probably not even on your scale of understanding diamond size. Off the chart. (laughs) And it's a kingdom maker or a reason to torture one's own brother, as we will see. But the Koh-i-Noor of old doesn't really exist anymore since 1852. It's been kind of in retirement, as Sarah said, because that's when it fell into British hands and was recut into this symmetrical rock that just didn't quite have the messy glory of the old one. Yeah, since then it's been worn by Queen Victoria and two queen consorts, avoiding that tricky, no man should possess (laughs) the diamond. But unless you've been to the Tower of London lately, the last time you probably saw it was at the Queen Mother's funeral. It was the central stone on her crown of state, and so it was on top of her coffin. And this prominent display during the funeral caused a little bit of a stir, because the British claim on the stone is pretty dodgy at best. They essentially took it from a minor, from a kid. They took the diamond from a kid. Candy from a baby. Yeah, exactly. And so it seems that even centuries after this stone's really wild history has passed, people are still trying to get their hands on it. Indian MPs have petitioned for the stone to be returned to India. An ancient Sikh gentleman has tried to get it back. Even the Taliban made a claim on the stone back in 2001. So we've got to wonder, what is it about the Koh-i-Noor diamond? So let's start with the diamond's early history. It was likely found in the silt of the Krishna River of India, which was a major diamond spot until African mining began in the 1880s. And the first dated reference to a diamond that could have been the Koh-i-Noor was in the late 1200s when Aladdin Khalji invaded the Deccan Plateau. And he came back with loads of treasure, including this mysterious diamond valued at, quote, half the daily expense of the whole world. Again, off the charts, I'd say. So there's no mention of the stone for about 200 years when suddenly it pops up in the hands of the famous conqueror Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur after he seizes the Sultanate of Delhi in 1526. So in kind of a nice moment in the diamond's history, his son Humanyan finds the jewel and presents it to his father as a tribute, and his father promptly gives it back as a present. So a little nice exchange there. Still, it becomes known as Babur's diamond for a little bit, at least. Because Humanyan proves to be a weaker ruler than his father. He's also an opium addict, which never really helps with that. And he's shortly deposed. He flees to Persia with this precious stone. He almost loses it in the desert, but he refuses to make a buck by selling it along the way. And that's in line with ancient Eastern views of diamonds. You leave them uncut um, or cut to enhance the natural shape. That's why it was 191 carats. Yeah, and it's hidden away and never, ever, ever sold. 
Yeah, sometimes you'd give it to a temple, but it, it wasn't something to flaunt or to sell. But uh, Humanian must be okay with giving the diamond away as a gift because once he's settled down in exile, he's looking to start regaining his power and thinks that maybe giving the stone to a potential ally would be a good way to go about that. So at this time, it's valued, it, it's gone up in value. It's valued at the expenditure of the whole universe for two and a half days. So that's a considerable appreciation. A good investment. Definitely. Yes. But the guy who gets the stone, Shah Tahamasp, only sends it to another ruler as a gift. Diamonds are useful in matters of diplomacy, and it disappears from history for a while until 1656. When it pops up again, it's mentioned by the French traveler Francois Bernier, and he writes that the Persian vizier had just given, quote, that celebrated diamond to Shah Jahan, which maybe you remember from our... ring a bell. He's the Taj Mahal builder. Yeah, and he seems like exactly the kind of guy who would have this giant diamond. He's also the great-grandson of Babur, so somehow or another, this diamond gets back into that family after being given away. But in this case, the diamond brings bad luck, because as we know, Shah Jahan's son, Aurangzeb, pulls a coup and imprisons his father and eventually even takes his diamond. So this empire begins to decline with our symmetry-destroying diamond thief Aurangzeb, and by 1738, it falls under the Persian Nadir Shah, who knows of the stone and wants it. But even after he's secured the surrender of the Mughal emperor, Muhammad Shah, he still doesn't have the diamond. So where is it? Where is it? Yeah, he's, he's wondering. He's gotten all this loot already, and the diamond is not in it. Finally, a harem woman betrays the diamond's hiding spot. It's in the emperor's turban. So Nadir Shah, being pretty tricky here, makes a peace deal with the emperor. Essentially, the emperor will get to keep his throne as this vassal king. And to cement this deal, they'll exchange their turbans, which is a custom of the time. So you can just imagine the emperor being asked to give his turban away and knowing that diamond <laughs> is hidden inside. But once Nadir Shah is in possession of the turban, he promptly takes it back to his private quarters and unwraps it. And when he sees the diamond, he cries Koinur or Mountain of Light. And that's how it gets the name we know today. But once in possession of the diamond, things really go downhill for Nadir. Uh, When he's back in Persia, he starts to lose his mind and begins to butcher his people and blinds his son. Perhaps there's a diamond curse. Perhaps, because he is assassinated in 1747, and his bodyguard, Ahmed Khan Abdali, takes the diamond and heads to Afghanistan. And this is where we have sort of the final major stage in our diamonds history. Well, and we've got two kinds of people. There are people who hide their valuables away. They keep their priceless jewelry in safes where it's protected, but not really enjoyed, and there are others who like to show it off. Ahmed was the latter, and in his 25 years spent attacking the Punjab from Afghanistan, he wears this stone on his tunic as a mark of his importance. That's one way to bling it out, Ahmed. Yeah, definitely. But his son, Timur, is more of the hide-it-away type, and when he inherits the stone, he locks it up in Kabul. And it's probably, I don't know, he probably had a good reason for locking up, maybe because he has 
a lot of sons who all seem to hate each other's guts. And so the diamond becomes the central part in the ongoing battles between all of these sons. And while the brothers duke it out, this is where the torturing your brother to reveal the diamond's whereabouts come in. Um, their ongoing multi-generational fight with the Punjab starts to take a turn for the worse. A new Punjab leader emerges, a one-eyed teen named Ranjit Singh, And finally, after every possible combination of brotherly war has been exhausted, one of the sons, the deposed Shah Shuja, is forced to negotiate with Ranjit in order to regain his throne from his brother. And the family diamond is offered as a reward for aid. And that help is offered and given, but Shuja is slow with his reward. And finally, Ranjit shows up with 600 horsemen to claim the stone. This is the lion of Punjab, after all, so don't mess with him. So he also loves to show off his new diamond and wears it on an armband, which is apparently the armband, I guess, without the diamond, is also in the British crown jewels today, which might look a little sad. (laughs) <laughs> like an empty it. frame. Yeah. So as an old man, Ranjit takes a final wife. He has some others. Uh, this one is Rani Jindan Kaur, the daughter of his keeper of the kennel. And they have a son, Dilip. And less than a year later, in 1839, Ranjit dies. So this is where our tragic adventure perhaps begins. Yeah, that's because when Maharaja Ranjit Singh dies, he leaves behind all of these adult sons and this infant prince we just mentioned, and a very powerful army. And this combination proves to be deadly as they run through a series of claimants to the throne. Nobody's quite cut out for it. All of them get murdered one by one. And the army becomes the law of the state. So finally, just after his sixth birthday, Dilip Singh, who's that youngest prince, is declared Maharaja with his mother acting as regent. So he is now the owner of his father's diamond, as well as the leader of the Punjab. And he has a pretty cushy early life. He's learning lots of languages, um, hunting, falconry, but he is this child ruler, and they never fare very well in our podcast. No, they don't. And you can guess what happens. By 1845, things are falling apart. The army wants payment. The British are starting to move in on this independent territory. And the result is the first Anglo-Sikh War of 1845-6, to which ends with a major reduction in territory. The army is defeated and Dulip's kingdom is cut in half. half, yeah. And that's followed pretty quickly by the second Anglo-Sikh War in 1848 and 9, in which the Sikhs completely lose this time. So Dulip no longer has a kingdom. The British enter Lahore and remove Dilip Singh to a Christian mission town and launch a smear campaign on his mother and imprison her for years. So the 11-year-old Maharaja is forced to sign away his title, state property, and, of course, the Kohinoor stone of his father's, which is now coveted by Queen Victoria. The diamond does get in one little last adventure here. It's comparatively tame to what it's gone through up until now, but... Um, it nearly ruins one more person, and that's this British administrator in India, John Lawrence, and he's been 
tasked with taking care of the diamond, getting it where it needs to go. And he puts it in a matchbox and he puts, puts that matchbox in his pocket and promptly forgets about it, which I think I would be constantly thinking of the giant <laughs> diamond I was responsible for in my pocket. But he forgets about it. And when he's asked to provide the diamond, he remembers, oh my gosh, I was the last person who had it, returns home, talks to his Indian servant. And fortunately, this old fellow has saved what he thought was a lump of glass from his pocket before he sent the coat to the cleaner. So narrowly avoid losing this amazing diamond at the last minute here. And it's sent to Europe, cut down 81 carats, and starts its existence as a crown jewel. But that's not the end of our story of the boy Maharaja. He's been adopted by a colonial surgeon uh, since he's been separated from his mother and converts to Christianity. And in 1854, he's sent to England, where he is a big hit with Victoria. And supposedly, she notes that, quote, those eyes and those teeth are too beautiful, which... We're not sure if that's a little Victorian crush or something incredibly patronizing. Maybe leaning towards the (laughs) patronizing, especially since he's a he's a young teenager at the time. But he lives in London and Yorkshire, and he's just your typical English gentleman here. He hunts, he socializes, he plays the country squire and earns the nickname the Black Prince, and he even becomes a Freemason. So this seems like total assimilation, right? Well, we can't forget about his mother, Rani Jindan Kaur. Has he forgotten her? Well, the imprisoned Jindan has since escaped her British jailers. She disguised herself as a slave girl and made her way to Nepal to seek asylum. And Dilip sees her again, finally, after 13 years apart, when he is allowed to return east for a tiger hunting trip. Um, and see her, and he gets permission to bring her back to England because she's no longer seen as a threat. She's older, she's sickly, she's nearly blind. You know, surely she's been in prison for years. Surely she could not be fomenting revolution. Well, they are wrong about her because even though she only lives in England for a short time after this, before she dies, she starts planting little seeds of revolt in her son's head, reminding him who he is, what his position is, who his father was, and he starts losing that assimilation, which the British have been trying so hard to make complete. And by the time he returns to India in 1864 to bring his mother's body home, he's starting to think seriously about what he could be. But I don't know, these, these thoughts are kind of sidetracked by his formation of a family. He's got, he gets other things on his mind pretty quickly. Right. He marries Bamba Mueller, who's a part Ethiopian, part German, and the daughter of a slave and a teacher in a mission school. She's called a real life Cinderella. And they settle on a Suffolk estate and bring their children up as royalty. But that, you know, that seed was planted and it continues to haunt Dilip. And he's also got pressure from a cousin at some point and a prophecy of the 10th Sikh guru. And that finally makes Dilip push for his sovereignty. So he starts demanding that he be reinstated as the Maharaja and that the British restore Punjab. And in 1886, he actually tries to get back to India. He hasn't been back since his mother's, uh, since returning his mother's body for this He's hoping to to reconvert to the Sikh religion, but he's arrested along the way. He converts there, and then he spends the last six years of his life in Paris trying to get the throne back, and 
getting into some really bizarre conspiracy stuff. He's working with Russians and Irish revolutionaries, hoping that with this series of distractions and plots, they can invade India through the Khyber Pass. They weren't my first choice, and I was thinking of people he might ally himself no, with. No, definitely not. But again, domesticity combined with uh, ill health settle his ambitions a bit. He marries his English mistress in 1889 and has two more daughters. And as he approaches death, he reconciles with Queen Victoria. You know, she did very much like him once upon a time. She gives him a full pardon and he dies in Paris and his body is returned to his estate in England. But there's one little interesting note here on the body of his mother in her tomb. So while researching a book on Dalip, historian Peter Bantz found this gravestone of Jindun in the catacombs of an English chapel. And the marker had been buried in rubble. The catacombs had been in ruins since the 1920s, and the marker had been buried in rubble. And here she is, though. So something seems wrong if... Dulip went back to India with the body of his mother. Why is there a tombstone <laughs> in England? Well, law at the time prevented cremations and in England. T- yes, yeah. sorry. And it took a year for Dulip to secure passage for him and his mother's body back to India. So in the meantime, she was interred in England with this very fine monument and considering it's just temporary. Exactly. And the sadness of this story caught the attention of Charles Dickens, who wrote of a quote, poor woman whose ashes have been squabbled over. Dickens also made an interesting allusion to her brief power over the British, and he wrote, Down here, in a coffin covered with white velvet and studded with brass and nails, rests the Indian dancing woman whose strong will and bitter enmity towards England caused Lord Dalhousie to say of her, when in exile, that she was the only person our government near feared. And it's said that a man who possesses the Kohinoor will rule the world but will suffer for it. So who could say what would have happened had Ronnie Jindan Kaur possessed the stone herself? That's our thought to ponder on. And that brings us to listener mail. Our email today is from Austin, who attends Texas Tech University. And he said, as I was listening to your podcast on the stars of the Wild West, I noticed you mentioned Will Rogers. Being the loyal Red Raider that I am, I thought I would clue y'all in on something interesting about Will. Will was the reason that Texas Tech has a school band. He was the man who gave us the money to travel to Fort Worth to play for the TCU game. He said that he wanted them to hear, quote, what a real West Texas band sounds like. Ever since, our band has been known as the Goin' Band from Raiderland, and we even gave Will a statue at the entrance to our campus. We really liked that one. Thank you. And if you have cool little notes you'd like to send us on aspects of our podcast, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We also have a Twitter feed, Missed in History, and a Facebook fan page. You can keep up what we're doing on a day-to-day basis and see pictures and stuff. And we've also got a great article if you're interested in learning a little bit more about diamond thievery. You can search for How Diamond Thieves Work on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 